Hello and thanks for tuning in. This is the radio ministry of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please open up your Bibles and join us. Here's Pastor Dennis Helton. Okay, hey, good to see you guys tonight. Good to be here. Uh, we actually ha- still have light out there, isn't that nice? Uh, we'll be too much longer. Uh, we'll get finished and we'll still have light out there. That's always kind of neat too. Anyway, uh, what we're going to do tonight is continue what we did last week and kind of do the highlights of the Shepherds Conference. And we last left off with uh, Washer, which was just about midway through. Um, and what we're doing is we're just taking their messages and trying to give their, their main points that they had, go through some of uh, the quotes. Uh, and I'm relying on some of these guys here to, you know, to, to kind of fill in, too, because I didn't catch everything. Um, there was one guy with us that, that was really quick with his, uh, with his hand and his uh, system that he had, and he was able to get just about everything whenever he did do that. Um, but anyway, um, that... that um, that conference is still really not up on the internet yet, uh, even though there are some sessions that are kind of available, and I think um, they will probably have that ready, but it, it was excellent. Ligonier already has its up. Uh, they had theirs last week, which is a week after um, the ones out at uh, the Shepherds. So uh, at any rate, we'll, we'll try to cover as much as we can in a short amount of time. It's ridiculous to try to get... Uh, 15 messages done in in one or two hours, isn't it? Because <laughs> each one of these was at least an hour. They go about as long as I do, believe it or not. And so uh, what we'll do is we'll pick it up where the session eight was. There are 15 all together. I don't know how far we'll go tonight. I have planned to go ahead and get through it, uh, but we may or may not. Uh, but uh, at any rate, I hope some of these points that they have here are helpful and kind of get you something to uh, think about. I'm not going to grab all the, the aspects, what they have. I'm doing them very briefly, obviously, but um, the, the rest of it's up to you. If you want to hear them on, uh, on the Shepherds Conference later on, it's on the web. Or um, what we're going to do, though, is take these, these texts that they have, take the points that they had, and uh, summarize that. So I'm going to be talking fast, quickly, uh, and I'll be amazed if uh, you'll be able to pick everything up that I'm saying, uh, because I'm not so sure uh, how quick I can say it and then make sense. (laughs) Why don't we start off with prayer? Father, we thank you for who you are, your greatness, your majesty, your holiness. You certainly are the God that we adore. We want to know you, to know you more and more. And it's an, it's, it will be an eternity, Lord, to know you. And that is eternal life. Uh, thank you for your word. For that is the reason. That is how. That is why we learn about you. As we see in the person of Jesus Christ, this written word. And we pray for your Holy Spirit that he would lead us. And he is always ready and willing to uh, give us this truth and to impound it into our minds and into our thoughts. Thank you for this evening, and thank you for the ones that you brought out. May all glory be given to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, the the first one was um, Mark Dever. And what I'm going to do is I'll I'll try to at least get, uh, get a picture here of these guys. They have some up on um, YouTube. And so there's Mark Dever. 
and you can see he was he was punching it out. Do you see that right there? <laughs> Making his sometimes when you grab these pictures, it's like they they can have all sorts of strange combobulations. Their mouths are going. You know, you ever caught anybody in action? It's almost like as soon as they stop, they're always in some weird look. So who knows what we'll have. Well, that one's a pretty good one, so yeah, we did okay. The rest of these I don't really have even set up, so we'll see what we have on that. And uh, try to uh, I'll try to get serious here now. No, it's just off YouTube. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, we, we probably would have done better if we could have sat way up in front to get those pictures. But my pictures are like, wow, who's that? So, well, can't you see? That's, that's John MacArthur right there. You know, he's a little, little guy. You can see the big stage up there. You can see the, the choir, you know, but you can't pick his face out too good. But we had pictures of these guys with him. You know, we could have done that. That would have probably been better had I been thinking about it. That would have been good. But we didn't get all of them. We didn't, I don't know. Did you guys get a picture with Dever? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, okay, two points that he did. This is this is easy. I don't have any outlines. Almost always give you guys outlines, handouts, right? Well, not so this time or last week. But uh, it's out of Colossians one verses fifteen through twenty three. He made two major points. He divided up like this: belief about Christ and believing in Christ. Not too hard, right? Um, if we were to turn to Colossians 1, 15 through 23, of course, there in Colossians, you see the sufficiency of Christ. Exciting chapter. It's the pre preeminence of Christ there. What he does whenever he does the beliefs about Christ, it's, in, it's found in verses 15 through 20. Um, and... Why don't we just read this real quick. This is beliefs about Christ, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. High, exalted, lofty, isn't it? Um, there's another one of those passages would be great to write a song about. <laughs> good. Anyway, beliefs about Christ, what he does with this is that he says, first of all, Christ shows God. Christ shows who God is. And by Him coming to earth, He shows us because, see, God is invisible, right? He's spirit. Christ is who came in human form and who is still in human form and is still God. Uh, of course, through the Word of God that, uh, that's living and active, uh, Christ shows us God. Uh, but God is invisible and the writer here is speaking to the Colossians, and of course they had visible gods, the, the idolatry that they had, right? Those were visible gods. Here it starts off, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the icon of the invisible God. He's the exact representation of God. You know, we could spend the rest of the night on that, couldn't we? But So Christ is the picture of God. That's, that's the, the only way we can really see uh, who God is in, in the, uh, the 
the fullness as far as the Word of God that's been revealed to us. Uh, the, the content of who God is is seen through, through Christ. So beliefs about Christ, first of all, Christ shows God. Um, B, under that first one, is that He's Creator, and we see that in verse 16 and 17, for by Him all things were created, heavens, earth, visible, invisible, right? Thrones, dominions, whatever, you know, cast it all out. He's sovereign over all. Uh, he's first. He's before all the ancient ideas, all the different religions that, that were there. And of course, in Colossae, they were familiar with many of the religions, all the ideas in the Greek uh, world and such. And he is the creator, sovereign over all. The, the creation is limited, isn't it? But the creator, and of course, that's Christ. Christ is before uh, the creation. Uh, another thing that that he is is that um, um, he's the author of new creation, as we see in eighteen through twenty. He is also head of the body, the church. So not only is he the creator of the physical universe, but also of his church. He's the author of that, the new creation. He created all things through Christ. He recreated us, didn't he? Christ recreated us. And he's the sustainer uh, of all these things. As he's the beginning of it, uh, he keeps us going. And in verse 20, we see that man has a, how, how did he say it? A problem? A really, a really big problem. There we go. He has a, there's a really big problem, right? Okay, but here it is. We see that verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So Christ is the answer to the problem. Sovereign God became a man. Uh, all the fullness dwelled in him. And uh, so he was able to take care of the problem of uh, peace between man and God. There was a war between man and God. And, of course, Christ is the one that made peace. And, uh, of course, it's by his blood. In Acts 20, 28, it's the blood of God. And usually you think the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, their blood of God, which shows you uh, definitely his deity among uh, other things. So there, there's point one. Uh, point two is going to be really simple and quick. We'll move on. The second one is belief in Christ. Uh, and that's found in verse 21 through 23. So we've seen believing Christ and, and about him, and now we see it's not enough to know him or to know about him, but we must know him. And so, verse 21, And although you were formerly alienated, I want you to notice the uh, pronouns here, the second person, you. Notice that. After he's been talking about Christ, Paul has, in these first tw uh, 20 verses, now he says, you. This is where Christ is applied to us. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, and he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly, established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So, it's belief in Christ, and it now is made into application for the ones who uh, believe. Uh, we were alienated and far off before, and now he's brought us to him. So that is um, the basic idea of Mark Dever.
pretty good text to deal with, isn't it? And some pretty good points that uh, that he made throughout there. Um, the next one is from uh, Miguel Nunez. I got to remember where he's at on here. Should be right here. And most of you are probably not familiar with Miguel Nunez. Oh, that's actually in English, too. Oh, we got to go a little bit further. Can I catch him? Look up. Miguel. Come on. Is that good enough? Well, okay. Get the idea. Hi, Audrey. You doing okay? Yeah. Good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, okay, uh, Miguel Nunez did a passage out of John, John fourteen six. Now, remember, this whole uh, conference was about Christ. <laughs> of course, everything has to always be about Christ, but it was called We Preach Christ. So every message was pointed on Him. And so Colossians 1 wasn't a bad one to go to, was it? Well, here is John fourteen six. As a matter of fact, you'll find that most of them came out of the book of John. Yeah. And... Uh, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Um, <coughs> Nunez pressed on the fact that we live in a pluralistic society, which means that uh, there are many religions and we're to accept every one of them. Uh, we are to live in uh, coexistence, as you will see on many cars on their bumper. Uh, and they'll talk about coexist. And they'll have Christianity along with Islam and Judaism and um, what other religions there are. Um, but um, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And, of course, he really didn't care really about, uh, I don't think he valued truth. He didn't value Christ. Christ is the truth. And so you have uh, a lot of inclusion, uh, inclusiveness, particular ones uh, that like to be inclusive. Or you can be exclusive, uh, Christ and Christ only. And of course, John fourteen six is about that. Clark Pinnock, which is uh, probably a, a, a picture of uh, present day liberalism, uh, said that Christ works and his works on the cross and such allow people to be saved through different mediators. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth." life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So Clark Pinnock's saying, but there are other mediators, and because of what Christ did, uh, Deepak Chopra said, it's dealing with attaining God consciousness. That's how you get the way, uh, and, and on the right road. You know, it's God consciousness in your own mind. Like that? What's that? How does he defend a stance like that? It's kind of ridiculous. Well, it's, it's more or less kind of what New Age brought out um, finding God in your own mind, in your own thinking. I am God, right? In the 80s, that's what we heard so much. And, of course, a lot of Hollywood was believing in that. And, and um, you would hear a lot of actors, you know, and then they would take on the thought of, um, if, if I believe and, and I think that I am God, then there's really not one personal God, but I am God. I just need to discover that. I need to find out that I really have no sin. See, that, that's the, the problem with man is that he thinks he's a sinner. And that was some of the thinking. And so anyway, if you don't have the truth, that's the kind of things that, uh, that, that you come up with. 
Luther, uh, Martin Luther, since we're dealing with the uh, uh, 1500 years, uh, or 500 years, I'm sorry, I was thinking about back in 1500. Uh, Luther led the church out of error because it was steeped in error under the one one Catholic church. Uh, church. Uh, Solus Christus, remember? Christ, Christ alone. So John 14, 6 is uh, about that. And of course, there was a uh, in John 14, you have Thomas who asked that great question, Lord, where are you going? And the key question is, how do we know the way? There we go. That's what Thomas said. How do we know the way? And Jesus uh, showed his identity, and uh, of course he made that statement, I am the way. That's really narrow to say, I am. He could have said, well, you know, this way and this way, and, and I'm in there too, you know. But no, he, he made it very pointed. And I am eternal life. Uh, it's found in him alone. John 14, 6, we're familiar with that. He didn't say that the Torah is the way. That's, that's the Bible, that's the law, first five books, right? Uh, Judaism uh, claims the Shema, that there is only one God. Uh, Islam says that there is no other God but him. And then the Buddhists uh, have their four noble truths. And, of course, communism uh, says that um, each has his own ability and we're to meet the uh, needs according to their needs by our ability. Uh, but Jesus was very exclusive. So he took John fourteen six and divided it up in three parts. How, how would you divide that up? The way, the truth, the life. <laughs> Pretty easy. But uh, before Adam fell, he had access to God. Adam sinned. He lost the way to God. When he did that, what he did is that he turned away from truth, absolute truth in who God is. God is truth. God had given him nothing but truth. He exchanged the truth for a lie, as in Romans 1. And so goes man in that sense. Of course, Romans uh, talks about that. But anyway, um, if if you don't look at Jesus as the way, then you will try morality, you will try it through philosophy, you will try it through religion, you will try it through best effort. Um, man's way has been those things. As a matter of fact, I use James Montgomery Boyce, who's one of my, my favorite uh, expositors <laughs> down through the years, and he uh, used three illustrations out of that. Here's the way man planned it to get back to God or discovering God in your own mind that you are God or idolatry as such. One was through the path of nature or creation. That's how you get back to God. Uh, number two is the path of morality, you know, being good. And, of course, the path of religion. Jesus says, I am the way. The truth. He says he's the truth. And of course, like we said, that's um, man lost truth uh, whenever the sin happened. Uh, Jesus said, I came to testify to the truth. John 18, 37. Um, so, so that's the way, the truth, the life. Uh, Adam became spiritually dead. All men are dead spiritually, but they must eat of the bread of life. And, of course, here Jesus says he's the life. John 6, he's stated that he was the bread of life, right? 
So we have to partake of Him. Um, I cannot be born again without His death, His resurrection. And so you, you take those away, there's no gospel. Uh, when we say resurrection, we say um, the blood of Christ, uh, we, we believe in the uh, incarnation. Those kind of things make people really nervous if they're not Christians, and they'd rather you not say those kind of things. And now Christians are saying, listen, don't, don't say those kind of things because it'll offend people, and uh, they're not going to like us if, if we do that. But life is what dissipates death and to show that he is, is the life. Anyway, a very exclusive faith it is, and a very offensive words that they can be, uh, but so goes the gospel. And so that was uh, Miguel Nunez on John fourteen six. 6. Uh, simple text, but yet it's very profound, isn't it? And uh, it, may, it distinguishes it from any other religion just by using, I don't know how many times I've used that verse. I've probably used that verse more than maybe any other verse in the Bible. Miguel Nunez. Yeah. That's right. He's he, that his ministry's been down there. He's worked with, uh, of course, uh, MacArthur and the whole organization there. But uh, yeah, in the Dominican Republic, he's made a huge impact. Yeah. By the way, man, they're having a great uh, World Baseball. Uh, series going on. Those guys are tearing it up. They beat the Americans the other day. So there you go. And those guys probably know the gospel. But they they have some good Reformed theology in Dominican Republic. Maybe better than what we do here. Yeah, there's a lot of it. Because now I'm seeing Miguel Nunez speak at the Shepherds Conference. And uh, I think yesterday I got a banner for the G3 Conference. I won't read the whole of it right banner, away. I... Uh, two of the preachers that are preaching at the G3 in 2018 were uh, pastors of my throne wow. in Dominican Republic. That's fascinating. The text that I was given to expound okay. upon I'm is sorry. not... I've got to get down here and see who I've got here. Uh, I see Conrad. I, I pulled him oh, up. Yeah. Is it on up? Yeah. One of the first ones, isn't it? Thanks. There we go. Thank you, thank you, thank you. H.B. Charles. Anybody ever heard of H.B. Charles? Well, I hadn't heard him before. I'd heard of his name. That was about it. But uh, he did a great message on Ephesians 1. You know, there's in Colossians, there's John 14... Ephesians 1, oh, a tremendous chapter, right? And you would think, oh, yeah, the, like starting at verse 3 and on through. Well, no, not really. He didn't really do that. 3 through 14 is praise to God. We've done that many, many, many times down through the years. Uh, 15 through 23 is, is a prayer that uh, is about wanting other brothers and sisters in Christ to know God better. And we need that, don't we? We need to know him better and better. That's the reason we meet here. Yeah. This is Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. I wish I had this on a board or uh, a PowerPoint or something, but unfortunately I, I don't. You've got to take quick notes. Uh, I want you to feel it like I did. <laughs> it's like I didn't even get to see these guys. I'm down here writing this stuff down, you know. 
but uh, I, I wanted to maintain it in, in my mind. And that's right. Just, that's what I said. I can watch it then later. <laughs> You'd certainly be welcome. I'd love to do that. And let's watch the Luganeer while we're at it. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is all dealing with the surpassing greatness of God's power. And when we get into verses 20 through 23, um, by the way, the title of this message was High Above All the Heavens. High Above All the Heavens. You have to like that. Uh, he, did a, he did a great delivery. Uh, Got to like the guy. Um, four ways that the power of God is on display. And in verse 20 of Ephesians 1, Wow, Ephesians, Colossians, Book of John. We're just all over the place tonight here. Aren't we? And we are doing it quick. You being able to understand anything I'm saying? I'm not so sure I'm, I do, but anyway. <laughs> here, we, here we go. Verse, verse 21, verse 20. Which he, okay, uh, start at verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power? That's a great prayer for everybody, right? We all should be praying for each other all the time that people would know his great surpassing power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Wow. Just in those few short verses, we see the resurrection of Christ. We see the ascension as he's seated on the, uh, on the throne, the right hand of, of God. All uh, rule and authority is underneath him. And he's head over the church. I mean, this says a lot. What an outline that is there, right? Well, that's really what he did for an outline. Four ways that the power of God is on display that we see right in that section. Number one is God raised Christ from the dead. We also know Christ raised himself, right? But God raised him from the dead in verse 20. Uh, Christianity, of course, is the only religion that goes to the grave and there's nothing there. there there's, you know, there's no name there in the sense that, you know, he died such and such or born and then dead and then that's it. Uh, he's not there. He's risen, right? God raised him up. Uh, he was displayed uh, in, in power. And, of course, in Romans, uh, we, we see that. First Corinthians 15, Romans 8. Uh, the second one is that God seated him. So God raised him from the dead. Then he seated him on the throne the ascension. We don't hear a lot about the ascension, but he is seated and it shows his power. God raised him up, sat him down. Raised him up, then sat him down. The work has been done. It is finished. He sat down. Um, he's not standing. He's not kneeling. Uh, in John 17, 5, I think of the great prayer that he had, the high priestly prayer. And this is a Great verse. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Restore to me the glory that I once had before I emptied myself. Kenosis. We studied Kenosis Sunday. You guys were here then. 
um, you know, that's dealing with that emptying. I'll explain what that was. But here he says, I, Father, I pray, for that, I pray for that glory. Well, he prayed for something he knew would happen. But yet he was always in uh, the Father's will. And, of course, prayer is, is a key ingredient. So uh, that's what he, he wanted, and that's what happened. God seated him on that throne. That's where Christ is as far as creation is concerned. He's above all, isn't he? Um, he, he reigns in authority infinitely beyond any kind of authority we can imagine. Uh, number three, he placed all things underneath the feet of Christ. God did. I can think of Psalm 2, um, 7 through 9, and of course that area where the nations are in uproar, they're in rage, and uh, you know, God just laughs at them. He's in total control. And I can think of Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Of course, Jesus is ex- uh, proclaimed as, as Lord. Um, the fourth one is God gave Christ head over the church. He's head over us. That's in verse 22 and 23. Uh, Colossians 1, 18. We just read that earlier, didn't we? Um, everything. All things over the church. Um, you know, you cannot have a high view of Christ unless you have a high view of the church and he stated that and look that's right because this church is exactly what God is doing as he is making us like Christ one day we'll be fully in that sense like Christ but uh, the church is what represents God today here on earth you know, there was a tabernacle, there was God's people Israel, then Jesus was here on earth representing God, and then he left the Holy Spirit in his people here on earth for the last 2,000 years. Uh, it's been that church. The highest honor of the church, I think, is that we are in his body. And until we are in uh, his presence, he is not complete in his body. And um, so, therefore... Christ will fill all in all and he'll have the the completion. There's still more people to be... The elect are not saved yet. There are people who are elect who haven't even been born yet. But the ones who are elect will be saved. Of course, Christ's work did that. Okay, well, that was H.B. Charles. What do you think of his outline? Okay, let's go to um, Al Mohler. And I'm sure most of you have heard of Al Mohler. And he has a show on every day. The briefing. You got it. Uh, and if you want to, if you want to uh, get uh, a good head on what's happening as far as the world is concerned, and then putting a, a, a Christian worldview to it, uh, he is one of the best. So look it up on the internet. Um, and, and Ed, I'm gonna have to. I'll have to get that to you. What's his um, name? But his name is Al Moeller. If you just put, just look up Al Moeller, and but you'll find the briefing. It's every day show. But he's at uh, almost all of these conferences. I don't know. Did he go to Ligonier too? He did. He was there too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone that's out there, he's usually there. Uh, but yeah. yeah uh, well, he, he he could be. He's president of Southern Seminary, but he is a preacher too. Um, but um, and he, of course, he he 
preaches and teaches there at the seminary a lot, uh, a lot of the conferences and, and all over, but uh, he would very well be a good pastor, I do believe. We were talking about that uh, on our way after hearing him, you know, and somebody said, yeah, but he's, he's not a pastor like the other guys, but uh, yeah, but he's a president of a seminary that's making an impact uh, with Reformed theology to Southern Baptist churches, which to me is, is pretty potent knowing what Southern Baptist churches have been for the most part down through the years I grew up that way. Isn't his area of expertise church history? Well, he's very good at church history. Um, There are, of course, there are several. Of course, there's the one guy that we didn't get to see. Uh, He's part of Ligonier and uh, um, Stephen Nichols. He's very good at history. A lot of these guys are. Matter of fact, they they could all tell you church history. He's very, uh, he's big on current, uh, current times, and that's what he did with John 15. Uh, he took John 15:18 to John 16:4. Uh, his title basically was the Christ and the responsibility of the church to culture. Christ and the responsibility of the church to culture, and he talks about culture. So he does what he does best, just like Paul Washer does what he does best, and just like. Um, Whoever else is speaking, they have certain areas where they really focus uh, on, although they can preach the whole counsel of God, but uh, he helps us uh, in, in this area. And, and I think uh, Mick Walsh and Nandor, uh, I'm not sure whether you had heard him or heard him very much, but you guys were pretty impressed with his yeah, thoughts. Was, I, I had already been keen on him after not being for so long, uh, and then I finally listened to his sermons or so ago, so I was anticipating this. And, and you, yeah, you enjoyed it very well, didn't you? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, um, he, he first started off and says, we are, and, and this is good, folks, we already know this, but it's good to see other people say these things. And a lot of these guys were tying in on the persecution and such that's going to be happening to the church in the very near future. And, and of course, using... Throughout Scripture, you know, for all those who are in Christ will be persecuted, and of course, Jesus' warnings and such. We are at odds in this culture, with with the culture. And of course, if you know anything about the City of God by Augustine, which is really about the church and and the culture, it's always been that way. We can't make peace with the culture. The church is trying to do it. They're trying to make peace with the culture and just feel right at home, to feel comfortable. Um, the culture is not neutral, is it? The culture is not neutral at all, never has been. And so if you look at John 15, verse 18, and I'm not going to read all these verses, but if the world hates you, you notice the if there, uh, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It, It hated Christ. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. First of all, he's talking to the apostles, disciples, and he's talking to the church down through um, the the 2,000 years. And he's talking to us even today. But it started with them, and it did happen. The persecution did set forth very quickly. Uh, If the world hates you. Some would like to say this. This is what I like what uh, Moeller said. If we could just be kind enough, the world would hear our message. If we could just be... There is a sense in that. Yes, we we are to be kind because that's part of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Uh, Kind enough. 
But if we would just be credible enough, that's true too. But the kind of credibleness that some Christians want to say is, don't say anything about his death. Don't talk about the atonement. Don't talk about the blood of Christ. Don't ever say anything about that. Don't, and don't talk about sin because that is offensive. Don't mention that. Well, we've just stripped away the gospel, haven't we? They have to hear the bad news for the good news. That's why we're not going to say anything that's real favorable in, in that sense. Yeah, we are to be nice. We are to be, but that's not going to get them the gospel just being nice and just be credible. It's almost like we give away our intelligence when we talk about some man coming into being as he was as God and and he dies and then he resurrects and and because of his blood we get our sins forgiven. That doesn't seem very credible. It sounds ridiculous. And that we'll, we'll go in and, and live in glory in the heavens. You know, it sounds like pie in the sky. You know, and, and the intelligence of man really has difficulty with that. Uh, if we could just contribute to the culture, you know, maybe they'll get our message just by contributing. If, right, if we could do that, and that's what he hit on. Something coming from the world, right? Yeah, but <laughs> you know, when you think of the education that these guys have, you know, that you, you can tell it's not a correct statement. Oh yeah, and Al Mohler is yeah. probably one of the most intelligent that we have because he probably reads more books than anybody I, I know of uh, in a week. Sometimes he can devour a book a day. And he has a library that would would fill this room up. As a matter of fact, this whole floor up, and you know, his whole house is like a library. But he has specific big rooms there. But he he reads all the time. But he shares it, and that's why he has that show called The Briefing. He is not unintelligent at all, and he could tell you where he got these sources at right from his head. So, um, yeah, God bless him. But to the world, he would look like an idiot. This thought, right, and that's and more and more we're going to be seen as that. I am absolutely convinced. I've been saying this for over thirty years, but I think it's becoming even more present now as we are now. It makes they want to see us as fools when we say something like that. And uh, what, what is the uh, the show that uh, Wretched TV? Every once in a while, he'll go into the the campuses. You guys familiar with Wretched TV? It's on the internet. Go on YouTube. Uh, Ed and I was watching some of that the other day. And as as he's t as he's talking out there, as the educated come up there, uh, and some of these are Christians, quote Christians, and of course they say you shouldn't say that uh, we're the only way. You know, some things like that. Uh, some basic things like uh, you know we just need to be doing good. You know, that's the kind of things we're talking about. Doesn't that automatically disqualify you as a Christian? I'm just saying. It does in my paradigm. Yeah. The minute you say that Christ isn't the only way, to me, you're not a Christian. Absolutely. That, then that's say that Jesus lied. Right. And if he's not the only no way, there are other ways, then the cross really means nothing. So, but anyway. Who are you talking about, Vince? What's the uh, it's, it's wretched. Yeah. Alec Priel. 
You never heard of him? F-R-I-E-L. Say Wretched TV. Go on YouTube and you'll see. You can watch for hours. Just pop it on one of them. It'll just go on. I thought you were saying somebody's name when you were saying that. Yeah. Yeah. He, he just gives the gospel. And then, you know, he defends it very, very well. Uh, and he's been on the... Uh, he was at a conference a couple years ago at the same conference speaking there. Uh, but all these things they will do. 21 through 26 there of chapter 15. But these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in our law. They hated me without a cause. Um, I like what he said in this whole thought and then in, in, in out of the Matthew 10. Uh, talks about even hating. If you don't hate your father and mother, if, if you lift them over Christ, of course he's not saying we're, we're to hate our mother and father in the sense, but in another sense, if any person, even the closest people have more value than Christ then what is Christ, right? And who, who are they? What, what have you made them out to be, right? Uh, whatever keeps you from Christ, you, you, you have to cut that off. So, he sent the lambs to the wolves. We've heard of that? He sent the lambs to the wolves. Here's what uh, Moeller said and I thought, wow, that's really good we are in this predicament because we have been chosen for this think about it we have been chosen for this that's the reason we're in this predicament we, we face this because it's the ordained plan to bring glory to God if we are branches of the vine as in John 15 says and we're abiding in him uh, he, he, we just read this if the world hates you uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. And then he comes along and says, okay, I want to tell you, um, because of me, they're going to hate you. And they're going to hate the message that you have. That's really what it is. It's really they're hating Christ. So we've been chosen, as, as he said in John 15, um, you are my friends in verse 14, if you do what I command you. Um, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So he chose them and uh, he chose them to go through this kind of world. He who hates Jesus hates the Father. So there's the, the pattern. Um, the third one that he talked about in verse 27 of chapter 15, you will bear witness of me you will bear witness um, when we bear witness we uh, are giving the truth of who Christ is remember they don't like him testify brother. we have never been promised a tranquil life was one of his quotes were we ever promised a peaceful tranquil well we have peace with God but in this world we will have tribulation. Here's another one that he said I thought was really good. The normals for us having the world think good of us, that doesn't apply anymore. 
and you think of the, the political realm and how the, uh, even in the political realm, how the left hates those deplorable people. And that was really talking about the Christians for the most part. The normals for us in this world, um, if we did have them, they're not here anymore. It's gone. Um, the gospel is verified, it's articulated, amplified like no other way. The gospel is preached. John Calvin said this, the gospel can't be published without the hatred from the world. Have you ever heard of that one? The gospel can't be published, brought forth, told, spoken, preached without the hatred of the world. But there will be some in that world who have been chosen and they will respond to that gospel. It's the scandal in Corinth, the Gentiles and the Jews, and what a scandal and what a stumbling block it is in 1 Corinthians 1. Um, it's, it, it was the same, it's the same today as it was in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 there. Uh, it's crude. The cross is crude. Uh, it, it has blood. And uh, we know that it, it, it amounts to the mercy of God. Of course, that's where justification and righteousness and mercy meet. Uh, so, anyway, there's not multiple pathways as the culture suggests. They could get along with us just fine if we would get along with all the other religions. You know that? That's not the way Christianity is. Um... That was John 15 and 16. The next one here, I, I don't have, I'm going to cover this one real quick because it, it's dealing with uh, 1 Corinthians 15. It's talking about the resurrection. We've talked about that. Uh, it's Tom Pennington, and it was, the, it was titled The Issue of the Resurrection. Uh, and, of course, it's four foundational aspects there. Christ died for us. That's Hooper. It's substitutionary atonement. Uh, he, he came to forgive the sins uh, of his people. Um, number two, he was buried. This is right out of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the first three verses. He was raised, right, according to all this, according to the scriptures. And number four, he appeared after the resurrection to witness. And, of course, there was the ascension. Um, so anyway, if, if we don't hold to that, then uh, about this resurrection, the gospel is empty and it's not legitimate gospel it's a we have false witnesses we are false witnesses there's no real forgiveness there's no eternal life all out of 1st Corinthians 15 but now he has been raised relief right the reality of it all quite the implications uh, the next one uh, was uh, Conrad Mabiwi and <laughs> hey, I will First of all, just read the first section of it. And now, is that how he pronounced it? Yeah. Okay. Mbewe. Yeah. I've heard him introduce him as uh, Mbewe and Mbewe, yeah. and I think he kind of pronounces the M. So, what he did was Revelation 4 and 5. And you have to find that section very fascinating. Don't you like these texts they're in? You know, it wouldn't matter what text you're because it's almost like, oh, that's one of my favorites. It's one of my favorites. I love that one. I love that, that one. Revelation 4 and 5. Um, I'll make this one pretty brief, but the thing that I think I took out of it and probably what you guys took out of it the most was, and he said it right off from the very front, 
pretty close to it anyway. John, who wrote Revelation, peeked into heaven. <laughs> because this, when you see Revelation 4, it's the throne room of heaven. He peeked in there. And, and he's told to tell what he saw and he heard. Paul went to the third heaven, was called up to the third heaven. And what was he told? Don't say anything, Paul. Don't say anything. John sees this and he's told to tell it. John, you know, John needed this at the time. He was on the Isle of Patmos when he wrote it, being persecuted. It was difficult times in the 95 AD. What did he see? Well, in Revelation 4, verse 3, uh, well, verse 2 at the end of it, uh, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting uh, was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Of course, the 24 elders are there. Uh, what, a, what a scene we have there. This is the majesty on the throne. This is glory. Uh, whatever uh, is happening on earth and such, it doesn't matter. God is in his glory. And that's what really counts. He's on the throne. He's the paramount chief. He's the king of kings. He's the creator. And he's the one who is over uh, all the ones who are wreaking havoc on this earth. He's over them, right? He rules over them. So when we think of this, this gives us great comfort, doesn't it? There he is in his glory, his majesty. He's got him beat. Um, the impediments of the church on the earth today. Um, the impediments that we have can cause anxiety. We're anxious sometimes. We're told not to be anxious. But that's why we have to look at chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation. Um, but in chapter 5, especially in verse 4, after John sees that there's nobody that can open the book, can't open the book, look into it. Verse 4, he says, Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and his seven seals. None other than Christ. The lion, the lion of Judah, the root of David. This is the king, root of David. David the king. Uh, lion, you think of the the king of the jungle. Well, he is the king of the universe, isn't he? the The thing is, look at the anxiety that John had. He weeps. He weeps loudly. He wept loudly. But there was one on a throne, the scroll in his hands that could open it up. And so, John just didn't feel anxious there. Not only did he have just a little bit of anxiety, but he is weeping crying out loud. And then in verse 5, we get this. I just read it about the, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Number point three is there are better days ahead. Look who's on the throne. And if you read Revelation 2 and 3, that happened just before this, we find that the churches as a whole look very bad don't they? Most of them were given many corrections that needed to be done. There was no one worthy to open. There wasn't anybody in the church that could open it up. 
1 John 2.18 says we're in the last hour. There are antichrist. There's error. There's heresy. That was all the kind of stuff that was in the church then that's in the church now. Say, so what kind of hope is there? Where, where's the church? It's so weak. Well, chapter 4 and 5 is not mere theory, but it is real. And we see the victory. And uh, then we see the great praise of the elders and the angels and they sang a new song worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for god with your blood men from every tribe tongue and people and nation you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our god and they will reign upon the earth they will reign there so we know we know the end of the story that's why all this stuff is happening because ultimately we'll see the glory of god so that's what uh, conrad preached on uh, was much more powerful than what I presented. That was just a brief, brief outline. Boy, I don't know if I can do this justice. We have uh, really one more left that I really wanted to do, and maybe I can touch on it. We'll see what happens. Uh, I don't know. It's about ten. Well, no, it's. Is it almost eight o'clock now? Oh. Um, we'll, we'll just give. We'll give an idea. That's right. You have to watch it somewhere. And he's actually on here. This one has been recorded. Because this is, I think, the highlight of them all. I think out of all of ours and the guys that were with us probably would have said this guy uh, nailed it. All the other guys did a tremendous job, too. He did it out of John 10. And um, we were really blessed by Stephen Lawson. Uh, is anybody here not familiar with Stephen Lawson? Okay, write his name down. Um, you will forever be indebted uh, to us for being introduced to Stephen Lawson. No, uh, you must hear Stephen Lawson. And not just this sermon. You can pick any sermon. The guy is an expositor, and he, all of these guys are expositors. And that's, that means they preach the Word of God, and they preach it verse by verse. And every one of them, like I think you guys brought out last week, Every one of these guys, even though they took big chunks, they usually will take a few verses like what we do, Bible study or you know, on Sunday morning. But because of the limited time and to get context in, they would take a whole chapter or a big section. And Conrad did chapter 4 and 5. But they were able to cover those verses and still get the meaning out of those verses. Not like what you would like to have in depth on each verse, but that was verse-by-verse verse teaching. There's only one kind of preaching. It's from the Bible. And it's explaining what it is. It's called expository. Not just taking a story and, and telling about it. But it's taking the Word of God and saying, this is what it means. You can say, that's just too easy. That's what somebody said when they first heard about expository. It's just, it's just too easy. Well, you just read it and you just tell about it. You, you don't give it. It's good to have some illustrations. But yeah, that's what we do. And it's not easy. Because you have to do a lot of study and harder. go into what it means. It's harder. It takes time to get in there to get a message. Well, this is called Jesus the Good Shepherd. If I don't get through this tonight, and, and I'm really not going to, I wouldn't mind covering it next week, But, uh, or I might just say, just check it out on the web. Um, John 10 he said, this is Jesus' commentary in, on his own death and resurrection. That's kind of ringing, isn't it? 
You like that? This is Jesus' commentary before it happens about His death and resurrection. This is Jesus preaching Christ. Remember, that's what this whole conference was about. We preach Christ. Jesus is preaching Christ. Um, the greatest subject about the sin-bearing atonement. What a subject, isn't it? And He addresses the false shepherds and contrasts the false shepherds to the good shepherds. Um, I like what he said. This is an allegory. And he says, it is like a parable on steroids. <laughs> In verses 1 through 10, real briefly, I'd like to say, I don't ever really have time to read it, but you're probably very familiar. You're talking about the, the, the good shepherd here. We're talking about the sheep. And this all brings out the atonement definitely brings out particular redemption like no other chapter does. It's beautiful. And of course, he took advantage of it in every way that he could. Uh, Stephen Lawson loves the doctrine of, um, well, the doctrines of grace. And anyway, in verse 1 of John 10, by the way, um, I heard one guy said he was, he considered himself to be a Calminian when he went in before this seminar or this conference started and after he was done listening to Stephen Lawson especially he said he was no longer a Calvinian you know what i mean a calvinist along with it's taking in arminian views too you can't have both well when he was done he he was calvinist through and through and you cannot read and study John 10 without believing in a particular redemption are you just not reading it and studying it if you don't um, in verse 1 you have a sheepfold truly truly I say to you he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way he's a thief and a robber the nation of Israel is an apostate Israel so the sheepfold at that time has the thieves and the robbers and uh that was the congregation to whom he was speaking to, like the Pharisees, for instance, who was the, the religion of the day. And more or less he's saying, uh, that's the kind of sheepfold that I'm talking about, and I have some sheep in there I'm going to take out. So in verse 2 he talks about the shepherd. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. And of course, as we read on, we see that that is Jesus. Verse 3, we see the doorkeeper. To him the doorkeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep, his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. He leads them out of apostate Israel. He did it then, he's doing it now. The doorkeeper. Uh, the sheep are the elect of God. These are the ones who have are uh, intimate with Jesus. In verses 3 through 5, um, I'll read for when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. Sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Whenever this, of course, you've probably heard it many times, but a shepherd would would call his sheep. They would know his voice. His voice alone would they always follow. They could be in amongst all the other sheep that's around uh, on a hillside, but the very sheep that are his, he has a particular way of calling them. They know what it is. They follow him. 
And uh, so they're, they're drawn to the shepherd's voice. They have ears to hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, the good shepherd can't leave them in apostate Israel, can he? Uh, in verses 6 through 10, the shepherd sets up a new sheepfold. He becomes the door. And in verse 9, it says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. In this John 10, you get I am the door and you also get I am the good shepherd. You get two I am statements. I am is an incredible thing to be putting forth. That uh, What we have there is the good shepherd is not going to leave them in apostate Israel. He has a new sheep fold. He becomes the door. At nighttime, he would lay in an area that would make sure that nothing got in and the sheep didn't get out. He will lay down his life as they are his friends. Uh, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For those sheep that are his own, for the ones that he has called, he lays down his life. Matter of fact, he has the power to do that. So in this, in this thought now, this is where he starts at verse 11, he takes it into three parts. The exclusive claim that he makes. Number two, the excellent character, verses 11 through 16. And then the emphatic choice in verse 17 and 18. So you, you get the, the exclusive claim in verse 11, I am. That, that's a staggering proposition whenever he says, I am the good shepherd. I mean, nobody does that. I am. He, he's declaring his deity here because if you were to go back to Exodus 3, 14, uh, you get the, uh, the, the burning bush uh, story. You've got uh, Moses there and such. Uh, who do you know? I am. That's what he says. I am. And of course, uh, Zach Whitson did a, a, a great um, delivery on that Sunday in uh, systematic theology, talking about the names of God. I am fully God, or truly God, as Sproul would rather say. <laughs> uh, deity. Jesus is called um, a shepherd. And of course, you go back to the Old Testament, Psalm 23. Anybody know about Psalm 23? What's it about? <laughs> we know uh, dealing with the, the shepherd there, right? Uh, Psalm 80, verse 1, the shepherd of Israel. Uh, Psalm 103, the sheep of his pasture. Uh, Psalm 40, verse 11. Exodus 34, 11 and 12. All of those Old Testament pictures of the shepherd. And then Jesus says, I am he. I'm that one. I am the good shepherd. He says, I am. He's saying, I'm God. So whenever he says, I am, there are seven I am statements in the book of John. Right here in the middle of, of those I am statements is the apex of all I am's, as he says it in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Uh, right in the middle. So uh, Jesus, as shepherd, assumes all the responsibility to meet all our needs. And that's why Philippians 4.13 Paul says this that everybody's so familiar with. We get it in all the, the plaques and such in the Christian bookstores. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Anyway, he's, he meets the sufficiency. He, he is the shepherd that uh, takes care of us, feeds us. The evidence of his exclusivity as he makes this claim, it's an exclusive claim. He says, I am the good shepherd. 
That means the only one. There's no other. He is it. No other. Uh, the good shepherd, kalos, it means noble, excellent, choice. That's the kind of, that he is. Excellent character. He explains why. There are three reasons that he's a good shepherd. Number one, he dies for his sheep. Uh, as he lays down his life for the sheep. He, he dies for his sheep. Not for the lost sheep, but the ones that are his. Uh, this best uh, is just great language that represents a death on the cross. And he talks about laying down his life. Matter of fact, it's all voluntary. Nobody has the authority to take his life. Only he does. His life was not taken. His life was what? Given. Wasn't taken. Yet, sure, you know, he used the Gentiles and the Jews to kill him. That's part of his plan, but and they're held responsible for it, but yet it was all in his in his way. And by the way, it's vicarious. In Matthew twenty twenty eight, that means in the place of a vicar takes the place of substitutionary atonement. That is an atonement that we so often continue to hear uh, the that's being taken out of the gospel today, out of the church. Uh, vicarious atonement. That's the heart of the gospel. That means Jesus died for our sins. He took our place. People say that's offensive. He he died. They say to set an example. And uh, that's really it. It wasn't his blood. And we're hearing that through um, many churches, uh, musicians and such. Matthew 28 talks about, uh, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That, that means it was vicarious. Uh, he gave himself up for us. He gave himself. Uh, it's definite. Uh, it was for the many, the ones who are his. If he died, and he died, and it was it was just for everybody, then how successful was he? Well, he didn't do a very good job. You say, well, it's up to the people. Well, that means then if he died on the cross, he only made it possible. It's not. It's not finished yet. Jesus said it's finished. He not only made it possible, he accomplished all of his work on the cross. And all the ones that are from the Father, as is stated in John 6. I heard John uh, James White do this at a conference in St. Louis for the founders. Those are Baptists who believe in, in uh, uh, doctrines of grace. And he did John 6, and he did the best presentation I've ever heard anybody do of John 6. And if one understands what he says and still would walk out of there not believing in definite atonement, that's dying for the particular ones that had been chosen, then you don't understand the book of John, the gospel of John, John 6, because in John 6 you have in verse 37, all that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me, will come to me. Either that or we believe in a universal atonement, which means everybody's going to heaven. A Christian can't believe that. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Why will they come to him when they're dead spiritually? Because they are chosen. God opens their heart up like he did Lydia in the book of Acts. Chapter 16, right? Anyway, um, and, and so you read, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And then in verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, of all those ones, I lose nothing. So the Father gives them to the Son, the Son keeps them, loses none, but raises them up on the last day. That's John 6, 37, verse 39. Turn over to John 17, high priestly prayer. He prays for those very ones. He says in verse 8, Verse 7, he says, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them. They received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. They believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. So he prays for them. Um, Let's see. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your words. So there's the apostles. They were given from the Father to the Son. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. So he goes on to say those words. We find out that he's not only praying for them, but he prays for the whole church as we continue on down through uh, 17. Um, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me. When Christ prays, he prays right. That they be with me and where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me for the foundation of the world. So therefore, you have a definite sheep that recognize his voice, that are drawn to him. They're led out of apostate Israel or apostasy as far as that is concerned today. They follow the good shepherd. They know his voice. They desire his voice. The sheep are the elect. Definite atonement is not indefinite for an anonymous anonymous group of people, as Lawson says. It is exclusively for the sheep. Not an anonymous people. He didn't just make it possible He made it finished. And that was the unity of the Trinity that is at stake, by the way, also. Uh, And that defines the extent of the atonement. Well, no, I was just saying that really spoke to me when he brought that out. The whole Trinity. Yeah. It really seals the deal. Sealed is real good because the Holy Spirit (laughs) seals us. The Father keeps us. The Son keeps us. The Holy Spirit keeps us. Who are the us? They're the ones who believe in Christ. Well, how do they believe in Christ when they're dead? Well, they've been already given by the Father to the Son. The Son keeps those, the ones that have been given from the Father. I didn't say that. John said that, right? So the, the them uh, are, are the sheep in verse 27. John 10, 27. I'm, I'm going to have to close it out here, I know. Um, but you can see where he was heading with all this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Verse 28, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. By the way, my Father has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So you have Christ. We're in Christ's hand. We're in the Father's hand. The Holy Spirit seals us. How can we lose salvation? We can't. It's impossible. John 10 is all about this, isn't it? All about it. I and the Father are one. And then we look at verse 29. Oh, okay, we just read that. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's dealing with His deity. Father has one group in mind, and the Son does not try to save the entire world. The Father chose the sheep, and He gave them to the Son. And, um, of course, in John fifteen thirteen, He calls them friends. Matthew twenty twenty eight He calls... Um, uh, we have the elect in John eight forty two. Um, he's good because he will truly save the ones who were meant to be. Verse fourteen. He loves the sheep. God never. By the way, when you speak of foreknowledge, he said this. I thought this was good. God never learns anything. When people say. Yeah, but it's because he foreknew them. That means he saw down through the annals of time that you would choose him. Now that is, I would say, probably the majority of what the church today says here in America. The, the word doesn't even mean that. It means foreknowledge, to foreknow. It means to have a relationship, an intimate relationship. He knew us intimately before we were ever born. We have to treat that word correctly. And then it's like, oh, Foreknowledge. That means God learned that He that we were going to choose Him, so therefore He chose us. And that's what they're saying. When you when you use the word foreknowledge. I was guilty of saying that for many years. Yeah, He saw that I was going to choose Him. Where do we ever see that? Where did we see that in John? Where do we see that in any scripture? Where do we see that in Romans 8 when he talks about foreknowledge? God never learns anything because he knows all things before it happens. Remember Zacchaeus up on a tree? Jesus already knew he is there because he already knew in before the foundations of the world who that was that was in the tree. He, he knows, right? God, Jesus knows us. He knows all that the Father gave him. And he unites his sheep in verse 16. I have other sheep not of this fold. He called them out of the sheep of, uh, from Israel. Then he calls other sheep out of the Gentile nations and puts them together as one. And matter of fact, he says, I must. A lot of times he says, I will, right? And they will hear me. He knew specifically who he was dying for when he died on the cross and who was going to come to him down through those ages. If not, then he doesn't know. God doesn't know. God the Father didn't really give those to his Son and the Son couldn't keep them. Holy Spirit couldn't keep them unless some of them would choose him. What about all the rest if he chose all the whole world? But he did not. Many are called, but few are chosen were to get the gospel to all. John 6.37 All will come. All will come. Spurgeon said this about the, the shells and the wills. You have to love God's wills and He shalls. But a man says I will and he never does. Sound like Spurgeon? If God says I will, it will be. 
Third one is emphatic choice, verse 17 and 18. He concludes surveying the cross here. How intentional his death will be as he's stating this before it actually happened. Why does the Father love the Son? Well, he loves obedience. In 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. Exousia, authority. He does it in the very manner of his Father's choosing him to do that. Uh, This is a Trinitarian uh, resurrection. The Holy Spirit was in on it, the power of His Spirit. It was by the Father's power and it was by Jesus' power. He had authority because it came from the Father. And uh, so this is the Christ that we preach. John 10 is very stout on the shepherd and the sheep. Do a good study on it. It's impressive. Jesus preached it. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you for your, for your extra time here tonight. I had to get through that one. I hope it was okay. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this time that we've had to share with what the conference was about. Uh, we just marvel in your word. That's really what they preached. It's not about any of these men, and every one of them would say it, that they really are nothing. We are nothing. But Christ is everything. And because of him, we get to get in on those promises. And we are co-heirs with this Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for such a position and being kept by Him. We have really nothing to fear. We're to have just the fear of God. That's a reverence for Him. As we look at His Word, we are astounded. (coughs) Actually, we are amazed. Thank you for your truth, and as we go out of there, may Christ be exalted in our lives a little bit more tonight than it was before we came in, and that we can take this gospel to the lost, because there are people out there waiting to hear it and to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we thank you once again for joining us. We pray that this message would serve to edify you. And we say goodbye until next time. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Till next time.